All right, good morning, West Park. If you will, please turn with me to the passage that was read for us earlier, Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 23. Um, also, should probably say, happy Super Bowl Sunday. So, uh, Pastor Sam is not here, but he did give me a message. What is it? Uh, La-dee-da, is that right? Okay. Uh, so, la-dee-da. So, um, <laughs> but this morning, looking at this passage, we are going to be speaking and talking and studying about one of the most notorious characters in the Bible, Judas Iscariot. And when I say that name, it brings up a range of emotions. Maybe it's anger. Maybe we say, how could he do that to Jesus? Or maybe we ask the same question, but more just out of confusion. How could anyone betray Jesus like that? Especially Judas. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching. This guy got the best seminary education you can possibly get. Three years walking with Jesus. And yet when I say his name, it is synonymous now with betrayer. What leads a man to do this? That's what I want to try to answer this morning. What leads a man to do this? And so I'll spend most of our time on the first six verses, okay? So don't get concerned when we're getting to the end and we're only on verse six, okay? We're going to hang out here on the first six verses, and there's a reason for that. I want, I want to hang out here because I think in these first six verses, we clearly see three enemies at work in the life of Judas. And these three enemies are enemies that for much of church history, Christians have identified as the same three enemies that every follower of Jesus must fight against. We see them here, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so this morning, I'm going to show you how these three enemies show up in Judas' story. And then along the way, I hope to show you that all of us are fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. So we're just going to take them one at a time. I'll, I'll try to shed light on their strategy, and then I want to share some practices for fighting that particular enemy. And let me emphasize, church, we are called to fight. We are called to fight. My favorite Winston Churchill quote is something he actually never said. Um, it's in a movie called Darkest Hour. came out a few years ago. Maybe you saw that one. And so the movie, the whole plot is that we're told that the Nazis are taking over Europe. And so they've taken over uh, France at this point, and they are coming to England. So the whole movie is this build-up. What is Winston Churchill going to do? And if you remember, if you've seen the movie, the whole time his cabinet is suggesting that he needs to make a deal. He needs to negotiate, right? Keep us out of war. Negotiate. And then it leads up to the climax of the movie. If you've seen it, you probably remember this scene, right? Churchill bangs his hand down on the table. Remember what he says? When will we learn? When will we learn? You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. When will we learn? Church, we cannot reason with our enemy. We have to fight. And thankfully, a playbook for fighting has been passed down to us. That's what we're talking about this morning. And I want to start at a 30,000-foot view of our enemy's strategy. So let me introduce you to a really helpful paradigm that explains how our three enemies work together. And we're going to use this to guide us today. 
I first learned this from an author named John Mark Comer. And he summarizes the strategy of our enemies this way. He says, the devil presents deceptive ideas. And those deceptive ideas play to our disordered desires. The disordered desires of our flesh. And then those disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society. You see how that works together? So Satan comes with deceptive ideas, that's the devil, that play to the disordered desires, that's our flesh, and then are normalized in a sinful world. And so let's, that's our three points this morning. Let's take them in that order, starting with the devil and his deceptive ideas. Look at our passage. Let me read the first six verses for you again. It says this, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, being Jesus, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So right off the bat here in verse 3, we're told that Satan entered into Judas. That's an interesting phrase, and I was really hoping to be able to explain what that means. But when you go to all the commentaries, they all kind of throw up their hands and say, we don't really know, okay? We don't really know what this means. But thankfully, this isn't the first time that Satan shows up in this story. And so we're able to look back over Scripture and see how Satan works. We're able to see what his tactics are. And as I said before, his primary tactic that we see over and over again in Scripture is that he comes with deceptive ideas. Jesus put it more bluntly. He said he's a liar. He's a liar. Look at John 8, 44. This is what Jesus says. He says when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Other translations say he speaks his native language. For he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. The devil is a liar. It's what he does. His strategy is a strategy of disinformation. In your war with Satan, he will not come at you with a bomb. He will not come at you with a tank. He's going to come at you with an idea. That's how he makes war against us. We see this clearly on the third page of our Bible. You probably know this story well, right? Genesis chapter 3, the serpent shows up, and we're told later that this is Satan. And look how this goes down. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice, he doesn't come with a weapon. He comes with an idea. And that deceptive idea goes something like this. God is not who he claims to be. He's holding out on you. And you would make a much better God than he would. Satan convinced Eve that to truly experience life, 
she must rebel against the giver of life. And this is the lie beneath every deceptive idea. Satan injects the poison into our hearts that God does not love us and that joy is found in freedom from him. Um, think about it like this. I don't know if there's anyone who, who would say yes to this in here, but uh, if there's anyone in here who hates me, okay, I'm going to give you the playbook on how to destroy me. Okay? If, you just, if you just for some reason hate me, here's how you destroy me. I have a two-year-old son named Knox. Convince him that I don't love him. Convince him that I want him to be miserable. Convince him that he will never live up to my expectations. Convince him that he would be better off without me. That's what Satan does to us. He hates our father, right? He hates our father. So what's he going to do? He wants to make us question his love. So what is the lie that Satan told Judas? We don't know for sure. But based on his track record, he probably convinced Judas that Jesus isn't who he claims to be. That he's holding out on him. And true happiness can be found outside of his yoke. And he's spreading the same lie today to each one of us. So how do we fight back? Right? I don't want to just leave us there by identifying our enemy. Let's talk about how do we fight back. Let me give you two ways. Number one, we fight Satan's lies with truth. We fight Satan's lies with truth. Specifically, we fight with scripture, right? We see this with Jesus, right? He's in the desert. We're told of three times that Satan comes to tempt him, and what does he do? He responds with scripture. But let me clarify, okay? Let me clarify. Throwing a Bible verse out isn't devil, devil repellent. That's not how it works. You may remember that when Jesus throws out scripture, Satan comes back at him with scripture, twisting it for his own purposes. It's not just that we memorize a few Bible verses and then throw it out like an incantation. Instead, we have to immerse ourselves in Scripture to the point that we think biblically. Day after day, we immerse ourselves in Scripture to the point that when someone cuts us, we bleed Bible. That's what we're called to. Look, look we want to be a person of Psalm chapter 1. Listen to this, first four verses. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The image here is that the one who devotes themselves to Scripture won't be blown away. They're deeply rooted. They won't be fooled by the devil's lies. And notice, we're called to meditate on God's word day and night. Meditate day and night. I love this. Isaiah picks up on that same word, and he uses it to describe what an animal does with a bone. Okay? Can you picture that? If you have a dog, picture your dog with a bone turning it around, ripping into it, slobbering all over it, trying to devour it. That's what it looks like to meditate on Scripture. Day after day after day, we devour it, whether we feel like it or not. And it's through this, that daily meditation on God's Word, 
that we can avoid being blown away by Satan's lies. My boy Charles Spurgeon said it well. The devil is not afraid of a dust-covered Bible. He's not afraid of a dust-covered Bible. Here's number two. Here's number two. Here's the second way that we make war. Remind yourself of Jesus' heart for you. Remind yourself of Jesus' heart for you. I told you earlier that if you want to get at me, if you hate me, if you want to get me, convince my son Knox that I don't love him. I think you would have a hard time doing that, though. The other day we were driving, and I just said, Hey, Knox, I love you. And he rolled his eyes and said, Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and I was offended, okay? I mean, I was, I'm like, oh, I, mean, I love you too would have been nice, right? I was offended. But then I thought about it. I'm like, okay, good. He knows, right? He knows. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Like, like really, do you live each day with the knowledge that he truly loves you? Even when you're at your worst, Look at, listen to this. Dane Ortland reminds us of this. He says this. Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loves through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loves to the end. Can I give you a picture of this love? I want you to think about this. When Judas eventually goes and officially, ultimately, betrays Jesus with a kiss. He does it with clean feet. Because before this meal that we read about today, Jesus gets down and he washes the, defeat, the feet of his disciples, including Judas, knowing full well what's about to come. Isn't that amazing? That's his love. That's his love. He did the same thing for us. He showed his great love for us because while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, he died for us. He died for us. Jesus loves you. Remind yourself of that every single day. Now let's move on because we've talked about Satan. He is a liar. But not only is he a liar, he's a really good one. And so his lies won't just be any lies. He's not going to come whispering something to you that you don't care about. His lies are going to play specifically to the disordered desires of your heart. And that's point two. Satan comes with deceptive ideas that play to our flesh. Satan plays on what is already in you. Okay? He can't make a person evil, but instead he can make a flawed person worse. Our sin is like the strings of a piano, and Satan is the piano player. That is how he works. And we see this clearly with Judas. Look at John 12, or you don't have to turn there, but you can see it on the board. Here's John 12. There's a story of a woman named Mary, and she's anointing Jesus' feet. And the story tells us that as she's anointing Jesus' feet, the smell of the perfume takes over the entire house. And then Judas pipes up. Here's what we read. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help, used to help himself to what was put in it. 
Judas was a lover of money. And Satan pounces on this. Because you remember, what does Judas sell Jesus for? Money, right? Money. He uses this. Satan, Satan uses this. And so this is really important. This is really important. Judas wasn't just following Jesus, just, yep, it's all good, following Jesus, and then all of a sudden Satan comes into him and he becomes a betrayer. No, Judas had given Satan a foothold, and Satan took full advantage of it. Satan took advantage of Judas's disordered desires. We get a helpful explanation of this in the book of James. Look what he says, James chapter 1, verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. If you're a fisherman, you get this analogy, right? You see it? It's a fishing lure. Satan throws that in, and he knows exactly what bait to use. For Judas, it was money. For Judas, it was money. Maybe for you, it's something else. But here's what you have to know. Satan has something for you. He has a lure for you. He has something for you. So you see, Judas' story has to be a warning to us. We have to leave here warned, seeing this. We have to take this as a warning because we are not that different from him. Notice that at the end of our passage, Jesus brings up that one of you will betray me. And they don't all just look at Judas. Right? Look, verse 23. It says, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The disciples didn't respond. Well, yeah, Jesus, it's Judas, right? We've known that the whole time. It's obvious. It wasn't obvious. Think about this. The disciples were with him for years. They slept beside him. They ate with him. They watched him preach the gospel. It wasn't obvious. They didn't know. It wasn't obvious. And that's really scary. That should scare us to death. Um, I couldn't help but think back. Uh, one time I took the, the Myers-Briggs personality test. So you get done, if you ever take one of those tests, you get to the end, and it tells you a bunch of famous people that they think have the same, you know, results as you. So I finish it, and I'm clicking through, and first of all, Martin Luther King. I'm like, that's pretty cool, okay. Nelson Mandela, okay, feeling pretty cool. Jesus, okay, I don't, I don't know how they came up with that, but I'll take it, right? Like, great, okay, I have the same personality as Jesus, that's awesome. And then number four, Adolf Hitler, Okay. <laughs> And I remember, like, what in the, wait, what just happened, right? But, and that's funny, but, but that's a very biblical explanation of the human condition, isn't it? Because in all of us, there is great potential for goodness and godliness. And there is also potential for unspeakable evil. Any of us could be Judas. So we have to take our sin seriously. We have to. John Owen said it best. He says, always be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Our sin in our heart is like an acorn. And if you don't crush it, it has the power to become a tree, and then an entire forest. And then Satan comes in and lights that forest on fire. Have you noticed? Think, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Have you noticed? Jesus doesn't just address adultery. He addresses lust as well. He doesn't just address murder. He warns against anger as well. 
This is because every adulterous fling begins with the thought or a glance. And every murderous rampage begins with a tiny little grudge. We have to destroy the acorn before it germinates. We have to. Here's two ways how. Two ways how. Number one, consider the consequences. Consider the consequences. Let's go back to James chapter 1. I read verse 14, but let me read that again and verse 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a really helpful principle here. James invites us to consider the consequences of an action before we engage in it. Think about where it'll lead. Because sin brings forth death. I had a mentor tell me one time that he actually has a list of how him having an affair would affect everything about his life. He has a list. If I had an affair, how would it affect my wife? How would it affect my kids? How would it affect my job? How would it affect my church? He's keeping the consequences right in front of his face. If the fish knew that he was going to be dinner later that night, he wouldn't bite onto the hook. If Judas had stopped to think about the fact of where his disordered desire for money was going to lead, how would his story have turned out differently? We have to consider the consequences. Here's another way to fight. Confess your sins to others. Confess your sins to others. James tells us to get our sins out into the light. I love this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, Sin demands to have a man to himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. But in confession, when we, when we find Christian community where we can get it out into the light... We crush the acorn before it becomes a forest. And let me acknowledge, that's easier said than done, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of y'all are like, okay, I believe you, but that's awkward, right? Like, it, it is, it's awkward. Sometimes it just feels easier to put on a brave face and just power through it. But let me point out, when we refuse to confess our sins to others, we are not believing the gospel. Because the gospel tells us that we are all messed up. We are all messed up. We are all sinners. And so when we don't confess our sins to our Christian community, we are believing that we have to put on a smiling face and act like everything's okay and act like we're not messed up. When the Bible clearly tells us we all are. So confess your sin. Get it out into the light. Now our final enemy, the devil presents deceptive ideas that play to the disordered desires of our flesh that are normalized in a sinful society. This is the world. In our passage, Judas believes a lie from Satan, and what does he find? A whole bunch of powerful people that want to get rid of Jesus. His desire to get rid of Jesus is affirmed by a sinful society that hates Jesus. And the same thing will happen to you. Your disordered desire will always be affirmed by a sinful society that hates Jesus. And this makes sense. 
The Bible warns us of this because we're told in Scripture that the world is Satan's domain. It's his values that reign. And I'm sure, I'm I'm not going to stay here long because I'm sure we all feel the weight of the world. We wake up every morning and we, we turn on the news. We feel the weight of the world. So let me keep it short and simple with John 16, 33. Here's what Jesus says. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He has overcome the world. And did you know that he has also overcome our other enemies as well? Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It says, he, meaning God, disarmed the rulers and authorities meaning the demonic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The battle has been won. Jesus is triumphant. And so we fight, but we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory because Jesus is already victorious. But let me be clear. Let me be clear. We live in a sinful world. Satan is still on the prowl. And we are going to struggle with our sinful flesh. And all this together means that we will fall short. I mentioned earlier that any of us could be Judas. But here's what we need to remember. Judas was not the only disciple who betrayed Jesus. Think about Peter. No, he didn't sell Jesus out for money, but what did he do? He denied him three times, right? Denied that he even knew him. Here's Peter. We've seen it throughout Luke. He's always willing to stand up and be strong and call people out. And yet this little girl comes up to him and says, Hey, I saw you with Jesus. And he shrinks up. He too betrayed Jesus. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. He was a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Judas was a sinner. But here's the difference. The difference is that Judas actually betrayed Jesus twice. First, by selling him out for 30 pieces of silver. Then, by refusing to receive the grace that Jesus holds out to anyone who will receive it. The litmus test of whether or not you truly understand the gospel is what do you do when you blow it? Do you run to Jesus or do you go clean yourself up? What do you do when you blow it? And let me warn you, when you blow it, Satan's going to come back around and accuse. That's what his name means, right? He's going to come back around and he's going to accuse. Why would you do this? Aren't you you a Christian? Hide your face. God doesn't want to see you right now. He will turn around and accuse. But here's how we respond. We sang these words earlier. When my accuser makes the claim that I should die for my offense. I point him to that rugged frame where I found life at Christ's expense. We point him there, right? We point him there. We point him to the gospel. And that is the message of the Lord's Supper. That is the message of the Lord's Supper. So let me close with this. I said earlier that the battle we fight has already been won. How can this be? Well, I heard a theologian named Ligon Duncan point something out a while back that really stuck with me. In the midst of Judas' betrayal, Jesus calls all of his disciples together to celebrate the Passover. And here's what we read, verses 17 through 20. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So we're about to take communion, and I want you to think about this. Jesus looks at you just as he looks at his disciples, and what does he say? Take and eat. What's he doing? What's he doing? Do you remember the last time we heard those words? It didn't end very well. Satan comes with a deceptive idea. And what does he say? Take and eat. Take and eat. And then Jesus shows up. And he says, Satan, I got something for you. Here's my body. Here's my blood. Take and eat. Take and eat. During the celebration of the Passover, when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Jesus says, here I am, the lamb that came to take away the sin of the world. Take and eat. And he invites each one of us to do the same. In remembrance of him. Remembering that he came. That he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. That he died the death that we deserve. And that he rose again and defeated death. And so church, we have to fight. I hope I've helped you do that a little bit better this morning. We have to fight. But our enemy is defeated. Jesus is triumphant. And if you're on his team, then you are too. You are too. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you that while we were your enemies, while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you that you lived the perfect life we couldn't live. You died the death that we deserve, and through you we can have eternal life. Thank you. Thank you that though we believe Satan's deceptive lies, you came. You came. And if we trust in you, we are eternally invincible. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.